Oh, what a weekend. Take your alligator. Everything bothers him. He's unbothered. He calls it unbothered, but that's what's cute, because everything bothers him. He's bothered. I'm a botherina. What's up, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Unbothered by Tyra Vera. That's right, it's Unbothered by Tyra Vera. I am your host, Tyra Vera, the absolute best LGBTQ comedian in the world. My co-host, Snoopy Bijou, is currently enjoying a Whimsy's Alligator. Whimsy's Alligators, the never-to-be-sponsor of Unbothered by Tyra Vera, but we still put our Amazon affiliates link to Whimsy's Alligators down below in the description box. Carla's homemates also give them a shout-out right at the beginning. Carla has gotten caught up. She went on a vacation just to get away, and I don't blame anybody for getting away right now. Luckily, I've started to work again a bit more, so... I've been able to get away twice now. I went to Pleasanton, which is the Bay Area, basically San Francisco. Well, 30 minutes from San Francisco. And then after that, I went to Odessa, and which is in Texas, if you're not familiar. And then I did Midland the next night. So it was Thursday. We were in this theater in Odessa, Texas. And then Friday, we were at an outdoor venue, a honky-tonk, an actual barbecue joint and honky-tonk which I know I've told you guys before, but that's where I excel. Those are my spots. When it comes to like a good old-fashioned honky-tonk, that's where you can find Mr. Ty Rivera. I don't know why those crowds love me so much. Technically, I killed it in the sound check even because there were people out there and we had to do sound check and they started heckling a little bit. And so it was a fun situation. You know, I do have a lot of fun doing what it is I do and like I know sometimes people think that maybe I get a little bit more caught up in the local scenes that I've lived in than I do I don't really because once I go on the road nobody talks about that anymore and it's not the focus for me either so if anybody thinks that when I'm on the road this is all I talk about it's like no actually we don't talk about that pretty much at all like when I this this last time that I went on the road I went with Steve Trevino which if you guys aren't familiar with Steve Trevino actually a really great comic and the way he thinks about comedy makes me think more in that way like you have to think about things as far as what you're actually trying to say on stage not necessarily in a message but just Like, what are you trying to convey about yourself if you're going to put out a special? Because I have some people that are interested in putting out a special. And that's really what I'm known for when it comes down to it. Yeah, some people know me for the drama, but that's what a lot of people don't really understand is that nobody cares about this stuff in actual comedy. Like, this is local scene stuff. And for me, when it comes to the local scene, yeah, I'll make a little bit of problems every once in a while, but that's because every once in a while the local scene needs that. When it comes down to, like, certain people trying to police, and I did uh, um, a Facebook post about this just not too long where I talked about how there's this one guy that's kind of appointed himself a leader in the Las Vegas comedy community, but he's never done comedy. He's never done stand-up. He does produce shows, and I've done a few of his shows, and I don't have anything against him technically. But just when I hear about him telling certain comics that if they do certain shows for certain bookers that they'll have a hard time getting booked on stuff, and it's like that's not the way stand-up should work, and it's not the way it really does work. 
the way that it's supposed to work is that comics get as much stage time as possible and they go up as many times as they possibly can and they keep working on material and you keep tweaking it, keep working it, keep fixing it until it's gotten to a point where you can take it to a professional stage. And that's what I plan to do with chanclas when it comes to chanclas. If anybody's wondering what's going on with that, a lot of my goal with chanclas is to be able to have people come on the show that actually have been working on stuff. And that's why I personally am going to a lot of mics other than the fact that I just personally need to work on my material and I need to figure out certain things and the tags and all the technical stuff when it comes to doing stand-up and working out an actual set. Like I said, I have some things coming up where people really want to put some money into some stuff that I'm doing. And yeah, that does kind of come from the waves that I make because yeah there might be some people that get mad about things that I say but there are a lot of people that actually matter that look at what I'm doing and they're like yeah it's you see comedy in a different way and it, I do because I'm better at it than a lot of people like when I call out certain people and I bring up the fact that they're not very good at it you notice that that's not something people really argue with me in any substantive way. The way people usually come at me is, well, you're this kind of person. You're not a very nice person. Well, I'm talking about your comedy right now. I'm not talking about you as a person because you might be a better person than I am. I don't care about that. I don't pride myself on being the best person in the world. Anybody that knows anything about me knows technically I tell you I'm a horrible person. I don't care what people know. And then people start rumors on different sites. People talk about me. People say that I'm a prostitute. Well, I think I've discussed that enough and at length, and I don't have any problem with that title. I personally do not get offended even a little bit when people say that. To me, it's just like, yeah, you know nothing about me or what I did specifically. So I don't care what anybody thinks about that. You know, to me, that's kind of funny that people would think that they would take things that I talk about and try to weaponize them against me. It's like, really? That's what you think you're going to do? You think I care about stuff that I've already talked about? Almost anything anybody's ever going to bring up is going to be something that I've already talked about on my podcast, on stage, on somebody else's podcast, all three I just, I talk about a lot of stuff that's going on in my life and that has happened in my life because that's where I've learned my lessons from. That's where I get my comedy from. That's what has shaped my life. You know, I don't think about things the way that other people do when people are like, oh, I'm so ashamed, ashamed of myself because I did this. I'm like, I don't know why you would be ashamed of that. I have friends that, you know, have eating disorders that have body dysmorphia and I talk about all of that on stage. I had somebody try to bring that up in an argument at one point. Well, your body dysmorphic. All right. Well, are we reading my journal right now? Because that's something that I've talked about at length and I don't have a problem addressing or a problem talking about. I've also talked about the fact that as I get older, I care less and less about that stuff, but it's still there. It's been there for my entire life. I want to say since I was a kid like an actual kid, probably 12 or 13 was when I really started. And maybe that had something to do with the fact that I used to watch WWF, WWE now, but when I was a kid, it was WWF. 
<clears throat> that's another thing people try to bring up every once in a while is my age. And it's like, I don't care about that at all. I care about what people hear from me. I don't care about what people hear from anybody else because the things that people hear from other people that aren't taken directly from podcasts are usually pieced together by what somebody would assume that the rest of my life has been like. And it's like, I can tell you as a person who's lived my life as the actual authority on my life, I can tell you that I wouldn't be able to put together the way that my life has gone by clues, even knowing what I know. I mean, like it just, it all doesn't make sense. The way that I've met the people that I've met in my life, the way that I ended up navigating to the point that we're at now, just the way that all it plays out for me, it's like, this has been quite a ride. And I plan to talk about all of it. Anything that I haven't talked about is just stuff I haven't gotten to because I do plan to talk about all of it when it comes to that kind of thing. There's this one asshole that keeps saying that I'm on pills, which I don't care about that. When it comes to pills, it's like I've talked about prostitution. I've talked about the fact that I did speed when I was younger. I talk about, you know, anything that I talk about having done coke on stage, you know, like coke was never my big drug i had access to a lot of coke at a lot of different times i told a friend one story that i had almost completely forgot about that really makes me laugh and it was one time i was doing coke with this guy named frank and this was a long time ago it was at a mobile home park in south phoenix which it was one of the nice ones you know the nice mobile home parks where they're almost like houses but they're still mobile homes but I was in Phoenix at the time. And so we're in South Phoenix and I'm doing coke with this guy that just has a bunch of coke and he has a gun on the table. And I grew up around firearms. So for me, when people talk about guns and stuff or get scared about guns, I'm just not that guy. And so we're sitting at the table doing coke and drinking beer and he's talking to me and I every time that I decide that it's time for us to do more coke I just grab the plate and slide it over to me so that I can get a line and he's like man Ty you really you're really pissing me off right now you know and he's like, and this is when I was young you know and so he's like you really pissing me off right now you know if this was anybody else I would already shot you by now and so he picks up his gun and he points it at me and I'm just like shut up Frank you're not gonna do anything and so for me th this is the way that I've lived my life for a long time you know so when people talk about you know oh some of the things you're doing could get you in some trouble like shot like, could it get me shot? Because that's the level I'm used to working at. And so I'm not worried about pissing off a couple open micers or a producer. And for anybody that thinks I burned bridges, I've realized in my thinking lately that I haven't burned any bridges at all. What I've done is proved that people weren't bridges. That's what I've done. I proved that they weren't bridges. They were maybe a path, maybe a stepping stone, but definitely not an actual bridge. Because nobody's been a, th a through way to or from anything, you know, it's like local shows. Okay, well, if you get mad at me and you decide that I can't do your local show or you don't want me on your local show, even if you were headlining me, most local shows pay between 30 and $50 for a local show, not including a headlining at a club, but just one of the local shows. One of the things where the producers 
would be mad. Um, it was mentioned that I've been banned from LA Comedy Club. I'm not banned from LA Comedy Club. I had a conversation with Matt, the owner, uh, well, Booker slash owner. I had a conversation with him. We had a pretty in-depth conversation not too long ago um, after everything happened, maybe last week. I don't remember what day of the week it was, but we had a pretty in-depth conversation, and it was cool, but... The thing is, I don't really have any superiors when it comes to this. Like, as far as, you know, when it comes to comics, I'm not trying to make it seem like I'm the best comic in the world. I am the absolute best LGBTQ comedian in the world. But when it comes to, like, feeling like somebody's over you because they own a comedy club, that's not the way I address people. I talk to people with respect, which is what I do just normally. If you actually know me, then you would know that. But there's some people that think I just run around disrespecting people. And it's like, yeah, you wouldn't be able to have the relationships that I have with people if you were just disrespecting people all the time. That's not the way I work. I personally just don't treat anybody like they're over me because with the exception of very few, like when it came to Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory, I have talked about how he was very hands-on in my early development when it came up to st came to stand-up. And I knew nothing about stand-up when I first did the Laugh Factory. When I first did the Laugh Factory, I went to the open mic, which is the most brutal open mic to go to because you have to get there around 2 p.m. And this was even back then when I was first starting. You had to get there around 2 p.m., and you would wait. And I, since I knew nothing about nothing, I was like, I better get there super early. So I got there around 2 p.m. You have to be one of the first 10 people in line. I think I was third or fourth, even though I got there at 2. And they don't put out the list till 7. I think it's 7 that the list goes out. It's been a long time since I did it. But then it's an 8 o'clock mic. And you have to do three minutes of clean material. Three minutes TV clean material is the way that that open mic used to work. And Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory, used to sit in the back booth in the corner and he would watch every single open micer go up because he wanted to get actual talent in there. So I thought it was just like a regular open mic. I didn't know that it's more of a showcase than Jamie's looking for talent. And so I thought I was just going to go up and do some time and that would be the end of it. The way that it used to work back then, I know Jamie has had a child since then, so he's not doing it the same way. And uh, even towards when I was leaving L.A., he had stopped doing it that way. But what, hap what would happen was you would do your three minutes and it was three minutes on the dot. Like if you tried to go over, there was a guy named Harry and I don't know Harry's last name. He's actually the uncle of a friend of mine, a comedian by the name of Mia Mars that is L.A. based. Or I think she said that's her uncle Harry. But yeah, Harry used to because he had the old school like comedy and Hollywood like whoa, 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 and that's literally the way he talked. And so if you went over your time, you know, if you just stepped over the three minutes, you just hear from another mic. Whoa, that was Ty Rivera, everybody. Give Ty Rivera a round of applause. He would just cut you off right where you were at. And so luckily I didn't get cut off that first time. I just went ahead and did my thing. And then Jamie, the owner, would have you all line up 
You'd go upstairs because there's the upstairs part in the Hollywood Laugh Factory. You'd go upstairs to this little room that they have and Jamie would be sitting in the corner like a Don, you know, and one by one you'd go to his table and he would give you his advice and he would critique what you were doing. And some people he'd just run through them, you know, come back in four weeks. That was his standard was come back in four weeks. He'd tell everybody, you know, go ahead and come back to the open mic in four weeks. Come back to the open mic in four weeks. So with me, when it came to my turn, Jamie asked me how long I had been in L.A. And I was like, I'm just visiting. And he was like, he was like, I think you're a very good writer. And uh, I think that you should move to L.A. You're very green on stage. And then he was like, when do you plan to move here? And I was like, well, I was planning to move here within the next three or four months. And he was like, as soon as possible. He was like, get here, move here, stage time, stage time, stage time then come back and see me. And so that started my relationship with Jamie Masada. And then I didn't show up for a while until I met Joe Coy. Uh, And when I met Joe Coy, that was when I was doing Latino Night. I wasn't even officially a regular at the Laugh Factory, but I would get asked to do Latino Night because this guy named Chris Martinez used to run the Latino Night at that time. And he would have it completely packed out every Monday just every seat completely packed out. And so he had a lot of power, you know, because Jamie was like, well, it's basically your show. Yeah, it's at my club, but it is your show, which is similar to the way Chocolate Sundays runs to this day. I don't remember why Chris decided that he didn't want to be in stand up anymore. Or if he was just he was more of a producer than a comedian and he still uh, would host the shows, but he wouldn't do like regular sets. He was more like crowd work get the audience started get it ready set the table as they would say for the comedians that were on the show and you know it was just a show full of for the most part latino comics there were a few of the black comics that regularly did latino rooms like steve fly was one of those comedians i don't remember who else they had that was similar to that you know where they would do the latino rooms all the time but that's the way it worked so I got put on the Latino show. Joe Coy was at that time represented by Jamie. Jamie was his manager. And so Joe ended up seeing me there. That's where I first met Joe. And little did he know, I had actually seen him the first night. I was, you know, after that meeting with Jamie, when Jamie told me what he wanted to see from me and to move to L.A., we had the offer that if we wanted to, we can stay around and watch the show for free. And I decided to stay and watch the show. And it was a solid, solid lineup. The late Scott Kennedy was there, which if you guys aren't familiar with him, he's an openly gay comedian, was an openly gay comedian. He ended up dying of a heart attack a couple years back, but he was really cool with me. I didn't know him at the time, obviously. I didn't know anybody there, but um, Scott Kennedy was the host that night. Ben uh, Glebe was on the show. Nick Swartzen was on the show. Joe Coy, and I don't remember who else. I don't remember if that's the night that George Lopez showed up, but, you know, it was like that's the way the lineups were there. So, and Joe Coy wasn't to the level he's at now, obviously. This was 17 years ago. 
And so, like I said, he was represented by Jamie, and he was like, are you a regular yet? This is how he started it. And I said no, and then he was like, yeah, you have to be a regular here. He was like, I'm rep represented by Jamie. Please call the girls in the office and tell them that I recommended you and that I said that you should be a regular here and to start showcasing you. So, of course, I wasn't going to tell them like that, but I did call them and let them know. Like, Joe Coy recommended me and said I should start showcasing if you guys can – you know, help me figure that out. And so they asked me to drop off a tape. At that time, VHS was still acceptable. Uh, we hadn't moved into where everybody was burning DVDs yet. And so I went ahead and brought in a VHS tape to them. And they put me in the showcase process. And Jamie showcased me for two years, giving me advice and telling me what he wanted to see me do with my act. And this is one thing I've always told newer comics. You don't have to look at that as what you're supposed to do with your act altogether. You look at that as what you're supposed to do with your act when you're in that club. So when you're at open mics, you can continue to work on whatever you want to work on. But at the same time, if you want to be a regular at that particular club, then you also make sure that you're working on the stuff that the owner of the club or the booker of the club wanted to see. So that's what I would do. At the open mics, I do whatever I want. And then I throw in some of the stuff that I was working on specifically for Jamie. And Jamie at that time, like, I know he's not the same now, but back then he was a lot more into kind of character and point of view. And so it was more like, what are you? You know, what, you're obviously gay, you're Mexican, you talk about both of those things on stage, so really, where are you going with that? And he would tell me what he wanted to see from me, and each time I went in, and this was for two years, each time I went in, he would tell me what he wanted to see, and I'd be like, okay, well, that's my mission for the next one. So the way that that's handy now when it comes to what's going on with Steve, well, one thing, when you have Jamie Masada guiding you at the beginning of your career one thing that you pick up from that is i'm not going to take advice from everybody because i've already been given advice from one of the best from one of the people that's really been a success so i'm not necessarily taking every yokel off the streets idea of what it is i'm supposed to do and what it is i'm supposed to say a lot of people i don't care what they think about what i do because they don't understand what i do anyway you know, people will want me to really play into the gay. And yeah, when Jamie wanted me to do that, when Jamie, that was more Jamie's style, I was perfectly willing to do that because that's what I had to do to get into that club, which was the Laugh Factory. And when, I'll tell you, once I became a regular at the Laugh Factory, then I became a regular everywhere else shortly after. It was then I was a paid regular at the Hollywood Improv, then the Comedy and Magic Club. Like it, technically, Gabriel Iglesias is the one that got me to be a regular at the Comedy and Magic Club because the only time that Richard, the booker from Comedy and Magic Club, had ever seen me was when I was recording my album. And when I'm recording my album, I'm obviously not worried about being clean. And Comedy and Magic Club is more of a clean club. You can get PG-13 if you want to. And if you're one of the old school guys that goes there, because, you know, Paul Reiser will show up, uh, Don Myrera will show up. A lot of the comics, the old school legends when it comes to stand-up, will show up, you know, from the 80s boom. And so they... And the surreal thing about that club is you piggyback it. So if you guys don't know what piggybacking is, that's like regular shows 
have a host and then the host just brings everybody up when you're piggybacking you introduce the comedian that's next and the comedian that was before you is the one that introduced you so that's what piggybacking was and so when you're piggybacking and you're one night announcing john lovitz and another night you're announcing um paul reiser and another night is don myrera and i'm a nerd you know so rich scheidner and you know these people and i say i'm a nerd because i when i was a kid used to watch stand up all the time so a lot of the people that maybe today's audience wouldn't be so jazzed about just because you know they're not really names anymore for me those are the names that i remember because when okay so like when i was 9 7 to no probably 7 to 11 or something like that 12 i was really into stand up and then there came a point in my life where i didn't really pay attention to stand up at all so there's a a period where I don't know anything about stand-up like when it came to Mitch Hedberg I wasn't familiar with Mitch Hedberg and I started when Mitch Hedberg was I think maybe he had just died it was shortly after he had died so I didn't know anything about Mitch Hedberg but I was told by a lot of the comedians that other comedians were doing Mitch Hedberg when they were on stage and they weren't stealing his jokes but they were just borrowing his cadence and now you know well shortly after I did research to see who um, that was. And when I saw Mitch Hedberg, I was like, oh, okay, I see what they're talking about when they say that other comics, because Mitch Hedberg was big and Dane Cook, which is the weirdest combination of people being popular at the same time. Because if you know Dane Cook and you know Mitch Hedberg, it's worlds apart. But those were the two. And when you see people doing Dane Cook, you knew they were doing Dane Cook. It was like so overly dramatic and loud and a lot of physical. And I personally never had a problem with Dane Cook, even though a lot of comedians didn't necessarily like him. Dane Cook wasn't really a factor in my life. Like I didn't really like his stand up until I saw it live. And that was one of those lessons for me where it was like, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And then I saw him live because, you know, I'd only seen him on Comedy Central and stuff. And then I saw him live just because he was doing the 10 o'clock show on the Laugh Act at the Laugh Factory. He would close out the 10 o'clock show regularly. And the 10 o'clock show would usually go till around midnight. And then I was in charge for a while of running the midnight show with another comedian but I ran the midnight show at the Laugh Factory at that time on Fridays, I think it was. And it was, I think it was called There Goes a Neighborhood, which is not at all competing. And I don't care about the fact that uh, there's a comedian that has There Goes the Neighborhood right now. And his name is escaping me, which I'm friends with him. So no tea, no shade. But I just don't remember. His name isn't popping in my head right now. And I'm not really going to drill myself to think about it. It is what it is. But um yeah, so I ran that show, and I would see Dane Cook performing, and I was just like, yeah, it, it really is funny when you're in the same room with it. That Russell Brand is another one that I really, his humor, which I know a lot of people love him, so I'm not saying he's not funny, but his humor just didn't hit me that way until one night we ended up on the same lineup at the Hollywood Improv, was where that happened. We were in the main room, and 
you know, you, there's always guest drop-ins and a lot of times they're famous comedians and celebrities. That's not at all uncommon when you're at the Hollywood Improv. So you kind of get desensitized to the idea of celebrity when it comes to comedians. That's why I always say I don't really believe in celebrity comics because once you've been around comics, like famous comics in a comedy setting, you realize that everybody's just a comedian and that's what it is. It's not you know there's not really that difference between some of them talk less but i don't blame them at all because in a lot of cases they talk less because they're used to somebody always trying to ask for something from them especially when they're in a comedy context where they're performing with newer comics they know that somebody's always going to ask them for something that's something that i've kind of gotten used to but at the same time i just find different ways to avoid it and not to be alone with certain people because there are certain people that will really hit me hard with the like you should take me out and feature sometime you should take me out so that i can do some guest sets sometimes and in a lot of cases i feel like i don't even want to be part of that and it's not anything against these people you know but it does put me in a position where it's like now you're asking me to judge your comedy because if you ask me to bring you along with you then I have to look at your comedy and I have to decide if that's the kind of thing that I want to put my name on do I want to say I vouch for this person and in some cases the answer is no and it's not about trying to be mean it's not about trying to gatekeep it's not about any of that stuff it's just about a matter of I don't necessarily want to sign my name to that but um, what I was trying to get to is you have these people sometimes when it comes to local scenes that decide that they're gatekeepers and that they're going to decide where it is comedians shouldn't shouldn't perform and also really push their values as far as different bookers that have fucked them over. And it's when that kind of stuff happens, it's like, did anybody really fuck you over or was it just a business move that at the time you didn't agree with? Because I find that a lot of the stories I hear when people feel fucked over booker to booker, it's not necessarily that they fucked you over. A lot of these venues are looking for more than one event. So if you run a comedy night at a popular spot on, say, a Sunday, and then somebody else comes along and the owner, you know, they perform and the owner tells them, I really want you to run a show here on Thursday. And then, you know, the other comic is just like, yeah, I'll run a show here on Thursday. And then the other person is pissed off. And I'm not saying this is what happened with this particular booker because I don't know what's happened. All I know is this particular producer has at least three other producers that he doesn't want the comedians that work for him to work for. And it's like three different producers. You don't want them to work just so that they can do your stuff. Like, how does that make any sense? Why would you not want them to work for those producers as long as those other producers and bookers don't do anything to screw them over or anything shady? Then why wouldn't you want them to work for them, get that experience, and then when they come back to you, they're even better? Which is how I ended that particular Facebook post when I said a real leader and a real comic would want you to get all the stage time that you can get. I don't care, you know, who your influences are or who you talk to. I just care that you're funny by the time you get to me. And that's really the way I feel about it. Anthony Victorson is a very good friend of mine. And last Wednesday, he did a guest set at Chanclas. And then there was an open mic running on another side of town or maybe the same side of town. I don't know where it is, to tell you the truth. I don't know what area that particular venue was in but there was another open mic going and so after anthony victorson finished his set at chanclas 
like a few minutes later or a few comics later, he came over to me and he was like, I'm going to head out of here. I'm going to go hit that other mic. And I was like, yeah, do that. So for me, I don't feel any kind of competition when it comes. And that's another show that was running on Wednesday night. Chanclas runs on Wednesday night, which I do Chanclas. If you're ever here on a Wednesday, let's say 930. We've decided. I've decided. Technically, the flyer's still going to say 9. You don't get there till 930. I'm telling you guys bothering us take my word for it. unless you just want to get there at nine and start buying drinks i'm fine with that too whatever runs that till up that's what i'm saying but if you're at all time conscious don't get there till 9 30 but he still had time to do that show so i'm not going to try to tell him not to do that show go do that show go get better go work on your stuff go work on your confidence there's so many things that you have to think about when it comes to stand-up comedy that you really can't start cutting off different avenues when you're in the beginning like when it comes to me at this point I get enough stage time even when people are mad at me because the thing is I'll go to an open mic that nobody wants to be at I will perform in an empty room for chairs I will perform for a couple of comics. Last night, we were at Control Collective, which CNTRL Collective is how you find that on Instagram. It's a really cool space. And I was, you know, the room was kind of dead. But I got to give it to you guys. When it came to, I put an announcement on Facebook and Instagram that I was going to be there. And a bunch of comics that weren't usually there showed up there. And it was great. And like the atmosphere that we created in that particular room, because I don't know why after all these years, it just finally hit me that really as comedians, we do control the atmosphere in any room we're in because there's just so many of us. So if you can't control the energy when there's that many of you, then maybe there's something wrong with your energy. Maybe you're a little off because I know that we control the energy wherever we go. So when we went in that room, I just was like, yeah, this is going to be great. It's going to be fun. It's going to be supportive. It's going to be everything that a mic should be. An open mic really should be us learning from each other. Even at my advanced position <laughs> in stand-up comedy, my advanced age even, I can still learn from brand new people because sometimes they'll say stuff that just it's a lesson that I picked up earlier and maybe forgot about, or maybe it's a lesson that I never learned. I don't know. Just sometimes I am talking to newer comics and they'll say something and it'll just trigger me to think in a whole different way. And I'm always open to that because I always want to be getting better at what it is I do. I don't ever want to feel like I've gotten to a point where I can't learn from people. But it's just, you know, most of the people that I learn from, it's just through them talking and telling me about their experience. It's never, very rarely, I should say, is it ever when somebody's like, you need to do this. and you Because uh, the you need to do this, I'm like, you aren't even good at what I do. So don't, you know, what you need to do this to me. But if you're just telling me about your experiences, sometimes I'll be like, wait a second. That's a lesson I forgot about. Or wait a second. I never thought about it that way. So for me... That's just the way things work. But, you know, then you have, like I said, these particular people that have appointed themselves as gatekeepers in something that they're not even good at when it comes to producing. Like I said, the guy that I was referring to as trying to appoint himself as a leader, 
he hasn't even produced what you would call a truly successful show. Yeah, like, yeah, he's had some cute shows. They've been all right or whatever. But a successful show is like something that's been running for a long time. Even though we had COVID, there's stuff that comes back. It's not like things just disappeared and never came back. But a lot of the stuff that he had started isn't coming back. So does that tell you that it was a successful thing? Because most people, if they were making money off of something, aren't going to just cut it off, especially if you're just coming off a shutdown from a pandemic. You would think that if you had a good memory and you're like, this made me money, then you would definitely put that in right away. That hasn't been the case for a lot of these venues. So when it comes to that, I do get sort of like, all right, well, are you really even good at that part of it? So all the way around, why should anybody listen to you other than the fact that you decided at some point that you were running stand-up comedy in Las Vegas? Entertainment capital. Because Las Vegas, people can talk shit about it if they want to, but it is known for entertainment. This was the home of the Rat Pack. So if that wasn't entertaining on the strip, I don't know what is. And so my thing is, I'm not going to argue with anybody. I'm not going to fight with anybody. I'm trying not to mention any names on this other than in a positive way. Like I mentioned Anthony Victorson. That's a person I really respect. Claire Hawley is a person I really respect. And they're both up-and-comers. Ralph Tutella, who I've mentioned before. Uh, Kirk Broussard is another one. Ryan Barasa is another one. These are people that I really do respect because I see them getting up on the higher level. Butch Bradley is another one that I really respect because he's always tweaking things. He's always changing things, always trying to figure out, you know, what he's got to do to make that particular audience happy. And he does a great job of not only getting in the stuff that he wants to do, but also making sure that the audience is happy too, which is a part of Las Vegas comedy. That's one thing that makes Las Vegas a little different than a lot of places. A lot of places that you go to, and I have done stand-up a lot of places, outside of just the places I've lived, I have done stand-up a lot of places, and I can tell you that in a lot of cities, you can get away with just doing your act, and they're fine with that. That's what they expect. That's what they want. But when you're in Las Vegas, it's, woo party. We're in Las Vegas. You know, it's Vegas, baby. I hate Vegas, baby, which I yelled at a guy about last night, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but when you've got that going on, it's you do have to be a little bit of a cheerleader sometimes, and sometimes you have to expect um, or you have to respect that there is a bachelorette party or a bachelor party in the audience. So you've got to have a little bit of fun with them unless you just want to completely freeze them out or yell at them or get mad at them. But in Las Vegas, you really do have to be a different kind of performer when it comes to stand-up. That's why a lot of these guys that get mad at me, they really don't have any reason to be mad at me. They should be mad at themselves because they're the ones that haven't taken the opportunities to get better because the way that I got good at doing the rooms that a lot of people don't necessarily want to do or the rooms that people think you can't do well in was by doing them. And that's literally the way that I would make my schedule when I first open mic schedule, you know, because I didn't have any real schedule. My open mic schedule when I was first starting out in stand-up I really did just all the time go to the rooms that I did not like or the rooms that I felt didn't like me. <clears throat> the tougher rooms was where I liked to be. You know, like there was Market Street Bar and Grill in Inglewood, California. A comedian by the name of Tasha D, 
who I don't know if Tasha ever returned to comedy, but she was really funny, really funny, and in the moment funny, would have fun with the audience. And this room was just notoriously tough. It was, you know, in Inglewood, so if you're not familiar, predominantly black audience. And the thing with the that particular audience was it was almost like if you weren't being funny, they would treat you like a... <laughs> a child that was misbehaving or just, you know, a kid that wouldn't shut up because what they would do was they would just start talking to each other. And then if they felt like, you know, maybe we should give them another chance, they'd go ahead and look over and they'd pay attention for a second. Nope, still not saying anything funny. All right, cool. I'll freeze you out again. And so that's what they would do. But that room made you stronger. And that's the room. I used to have a joke about how there was a point in my set where somebody stood up and said, this is some faggot bullshit and I'm going to sit and listen to this all night and I dare somebody to say something when I walk out of the room. Literally, that was what happened to me in the Market Street Bar and Grill in the middle of my set. And what I said after that, and this is when I was brand new, was the guy stormed out like that and I looked at the rest of the audience and everybody's completely quiet. You could have heard a pin drop at that point. And I looked at everybody and I was like, I used to act that I used to act that same exact way before I came out of the closet and everybody just lost it. And I'll tell you the truth about that. After I said that line and they completely lost it, they collected themselves and I went into my material <laughs> and they started ignoring me like they did every other week when I would mess up. Every other Never mind. I'm not not angry about this anymore, but it was very frustrating, you know, because that the way that they just lost it. Chris Doran was there at that time, um, you know, because we used to go to Market Street Bar and Grill together all the time. And so the way that they just lost it was it was the most amazing feeling feeling in the world. You know, just having that whole room that was always so rough on us completely explode like that. And then have them immediately after go back to ignoring me. Oh, it was a kick in the balls. I can't I can't tell you guys how how much that bothered me at the time. But really nothing bothers me anymore when it comes to all of this stuff. And that's why I think I do so well, because either way, I don't care what happens. And that just makes it so I do really well. Do I care in the way that, yeah, if things don't go well, I'm going to work on it and I'm going to make sure it gets better? Yeah, but I don't care in the way that when you're first starting out in stand-up, you feel so much pressure to be good all the time and to be perfect and to make sure your set's perfect. And did I forget anything? And, oh, I wanted to say that that one way. Yeah, you should always keep that in mind. And I've told you guys before, I'll have what on the outside look like really great sets. And then at the same time, I'll be like, I forgot to do this joke. I stuttered on that joke. I slurred during this particular joke. You know, there's just different things that I'll notice that I'm doing. And I'm taking notes in my head as I'm performing so that I can work on these things for later. But I'm not going to get off stage and be bummed out about these things or look at it as the glass being half empty. For me, okay, it was a great set, but there's still stuff I need to work on. So let me make sure that I'm working on the stuff that I'm supposed to work on. And that's what makes you better. Choosing to go places that aren't the easiest. And everything is a blessing in disguise. Even though a lot of people don't see it that way, I don't expect everyone to see it my way. Yes, everything is a blessing in disguise in the way that you even take like some of the problems I'm having right now on the local scene because of the problems that I'm or I let's not say I'm having. Let's say some of the problems that I've 
created on the local scene or some of the like however you want to word that because i'm not trying to come off as any kind of victim or things are just happening to me things aren't happening to me things are happening for me and i realize this more and more every day because like you take away these rooms that are supportive for the wrong reasons you know because i'm popular because i might take you on the road i think everybody's pretty much gathered now that unless i really like what you're doing i'm not taking you on the road a lot of that i like taking out of my hands by just telling the bookers and club owners just go ahead and book local talent for my feature and my opener and everything will be fine that's what i tell most people so i don't have to deal with that altogether. but if i like somebody i will be like can i bring somebody along this time so i'm keeping my eyes open at the open mics and stuff like that and i'm finding that a lot of these open mics that I wouldn't have otherwise done because at those times I was popular with the people that you wanted to be popular with supposedly because I never thought about it in that way you know I never thought like oh I want these people to like me I'm just kind of like well you like me or you don't I'm gay and me I'm Mexican I'm from Arizona I've been that my entire life so when it comes to that I don't just assume that everybody's gonna love me and I think that's something I think gets lost on a lot of people too that when you're raised being t one thing that people are racist against and the second thing that people are closed-minded about then you stop looking for the approval of others because from an early age you realize that you're probably never going to get it so why are you going to beat yourself in the head trying to make these people like you or love you that aren't going to in most cases anyway so i never went at it at, in that way i just would go because that was one of the popular spots to be at and that's where everybody talked about so now i go to these open mics that are actual open mics on the weekdays and then i really get to be in the trenches and work hard and not only is that a favor to what it is i'm doing when it comes to stand-up it's also a favor to me in the way that i get to build relationships with comedians that in some cases i otherwise wouldn't have gotten to know newer people that are actually really funny and really good at working on things but because they're not the quote-unquote popular kids they don't get asked to do the popular kids stuff so i'm finding that there's a whole trove of other comics that i really like yeah i would see them in passing it's not like i completely didn't know who they were but i would never see them up anywhere because they'd go to the places that were quote unquote more popular and they either wouldn't have time for them or people wouldn't be you know the most welcoming of them so they eventually stopped going because that's something that comedy has turned into and i don't know when people decided that comedy was going to be about the popular kids because that's not the history of stand-up. That's not what stand-up usually is. Technically, stand-up is a bunch of misfits that have found funny ways to talk about their flaws and their insecurities to audience members, which if you pay attention, that's what I do. But the, the side effect to that is it makes you so that you're pretty much callous to even your own flaws. That's what happened with me is that I talked about all of the stuff that's supposedly bad about me for so long that now none of that affects me because it's like, yeah, I've talked about all of it. So why would you say it saying it be any worse than me saying it? Technically, I should feel worse about me saying it if I felt any way about anybody. And that's just because, you know, I'm the one telling my own story. And so 
you know, I could choose to have been discreet about a lot of things. A lot of things that I talk about, people don't understand. There's no other way that anybody would find these things out other than me. When it comes to me talking about, like, let's say the, the story with Frank, where I talked about doing cocaine and him threatening me with the gun and how he was threatening me basically all night with that gun was what would happen. Every once in a while, I'd grab his plate or I'd say something shitty to him and he'd be like, if you're anybody else, I'd shoot you. And I'd be like, no, you're not. You would not. Now shut up. Put down the gun, Frank. Let's do more lines. But nobody would ever know that story if I didn't tell it. When it comes to me doing speed, like I did so much speed because my two best friends, well, my best friend when I was in Phoenix, he sold um, Tweak. He was a Tweak dealer, which is meth. If you're not familiar, it's just another word for meth. But at that time, everybody called it Tweak, everybody I knew. So he was a Tweak dealer and he would um, he liked to smoke it, though, which is like the glass ball and the torch. So we would smoke it all the time. And there was one time where he just wouldn't let us go to sleep. It was kind of a nightmare that particular time. It was a hazing situation in a weird way because he wouldn't let us go to sleep. And he just kept making us do more and more crystal with him. And it was the kind of thing where he was like, if you decide you don't want to do any more, then, you know, don't bother coming back. And like at that time, you know, I was, I want to say, 18 19 at the oldest I was still pretty young and I wanted to be you know friends with that crowd and not because of the drugs because I'd never got addicted to anything cigarettes I'm addicted to nicotine for sure that's 100 percent um so I can't say I never got addicted to anything but with meth I never felt like you know oh I have to have it it was just always there but I did like the way that we would party together because at that time there was a club called the works there was another club called the bulk there was uh club ps at the time there was charlie's there was harley's 155 west you know there were all these uh, fosters was a popular club um <laughs> What was the Winks was another club. These are all. And then there was gay Denny's, quote unquote, Jenny's because it was such a gay Denny's. But yeah, so there were all these spots to go to. And, you know, I ran with a popular crowd like my best friends, a fucking meth dealer, which I know in some cases people would think meth is so trashy, not in the gay community. And especially not then. It was great that I was hanging out with the meth dealer. Everybody wanted to be friends with my best friend. And he didn't like a lot of people. He just liked me because I didn't give a fuck about him, which it's weird how that works out. But anytime that I've not given a fuck about somebody that's quote unquote powerful or has a lot of money because if you don't know anything about that drug yeah it, you can call it trashy all you want but those motherfuckers make some money because people get so addicted to it that they always come back and so you know there were people coming to his house all the time and I was always just sitting there kicking it at the time I had no work done to me I was a completely natural fresh-faced beauty and boy did these boys love me so someone would come over just to fucking talk to me while you know my best friend, the fucking tweet dealer, is weighing out their shit or figuring out what he's got to do. Um, there was a weird situation where somebody broke into this girl's house, though, that was a tweet dealer as well. She was the most miserable bitch in the world. Her name was Erica. And I 
would have flashes where I kind of liked her, but she was always just being such a fucking bitch. You know what I mean? She was just a horrible, horrible human being. Like, I joke about me being a horrible human being, but she was just terrible. And she would lay out, because her thing was snorting it, right? Even though I was hanging out with... Because she was the supplier for my best friend. So where he, you know, was doing well and had money, she had even more money. And so she was even more like wrapped up in it. And her thing was she liked to snort lines. And when I say at least an inch thick, these lines were, and no lie, at least one actual foot. So 12 inch long line and an inch thick. And if you've never done meth before, it'll make your whole face burn. And even a little bit will make your face burn like that. So now, because the thing was, you were allowed, because there were always rules with the people that I hung out with. I guess maybe that's a thing, a side effect of hanging out with drug dealers is that they're kind of controlling. But, you know, none of this is me being like, you know, I was a victim. I was a kid having a good time. And yeah, some things were a little over the line and some things were a little bit forced from the people around me and but it, it is what it is and we're here now so I'm not going to pretend that at this late stage in my life I'm suddenly offended by this or I was somehow a victim but um, you had the only thing you could do because you had to finish your whole line right there you couldn't like walk away from it and be like I'll do the rest of it later on tonight no you had to do it right there in front of her and she stood over you well she stood over all of us because she was waiting for her line last um but she stood over all of us and made sure that we did our entire line and the only thing you were allowed to do to help yourself out was you could switch to the other nostril halfway through if you wanted to or maybe not halfway through she didn't care when you switched you know you could decide like okay that nostril has had enough and then switch over to the other nostril but eventually I know because I didn't go to the house that day um I don't think I was invited that day it doesn't make sense that I would be but anyway there was one day where all of a sudden um they went and when I say they, I never got it confirmed to me, <laughs> like how this all went down. All I know is that I got called over like two days later and told that Erica's house had been robbed and that whoever robbed her house had stolen the safe that had all the drugs and her money in it. So Erica was in a bad way and... Then somebody loaned some money to Erica so that she could start building herself again because, you know, I'm sure she had money in the bank or whatever, but probably not a lot because, you know, a lot of that you can't really claim. So you can't just be throwing in throwing money in the bank like that. So um, they told me and like I laughed because here's how fucked up the world I was in was I think what happened was my best friend at the time was a part of robbing her house. <laughs> I have no way of proving this. No, like I said, nobody ever told me that this was what happened. And because I've hung out with so many characters like this throughout my life, I don't pay attention to the details. It, well, you know, more recently I hang out with people that are on the up and up, but um, when I was younger, I, yeah, I was always around people like that. So here's the shadiest part, right? Was I think my best friend had robbed her, 
But then my best friend, I think, used her money to help her get back on her feet. So, of course, using a fraction of her money, just being a good Samaritan with her money. And there was this weird dynamic where I felt like she knew that it was him. And shortly after that, I got because, you know, once stuff like that starts happening, things are quickly devolving. And my best friend ended up going to prison shortly after that. Our friendship fell apart because, you know, we were all on drugs and I got tired of them trying to be so controlling of me. And it really was like a at a point it did get unhealthy and toxic, like the way that they were controlling over me. And even though I was a kid at that time, I was just like, yeah, I don't need to be here. And so it was immediately after hanging out with them that I decided to move to Las Vegas when I was a kid, you know, when I was, I think I got here when I was 19 or 20. So when I say immediately after, I mean, they got on my nerves. I got tired of them. And at the same time, because back then was when I first started, you know, escorting male prostituting. Um, and so like the way that that worked out for me was I went to go do a call, quote unquote, as they used to call them back in the day. I went to go do a call in Phoenix. And then this guy um, that I met was like, yeah, um, why are you working in this city? You're too cute to work here. And I was like, well, you know, this is where I live. And he was like, I live in Las Vegas. And it seems like the guys there make <clears throat> make way more money than they do here. And so I was like, oh, really? And he was like, yeah. He was like, I know a guy who's an escort out there and he makes a lot of money. And he was like, um, if you ever decide you want to come check it out, you can stay with me. And I always have money around the house. So if you need some help getting started or whatever like that. And so, you know, I took his information, not really thinking about it. And then when all that shit went south with my friends over there, then I was like, all right, well, then let me call this guy and see what's up. And then I, you know, came and stayed with him for a little while in Las Vegas. He was completely cool, though, because he wasn't like trying to get me to mess around with him. Maybe in the back of his head, that's what he thought was going to happen or whatever. But he didn't outwardly try to force that or it wasn't like he was creepy in my room. He had an extra bedroom, which is where I stayed. And so I stayed with them for a little while and I figured out the way it worked in Las Vegas. And it was too soon for me to be here because it was like um, there's a way that the magazine used to publish. And so at that time, I would have had to wait like basically a month and a half to even be able to run ads. And at that time, that's what you did. You ran ads in magazines. And so like kind of back page type, type stuff, but they were gay specific magazines. And so um, I had to go back home to Phoenix for a couple of weeks. And then I went ahead and officially moved to Las Vegas because, you know, while I was there, I put in the money, I gave them the money for my ads and we hooked all that up. And then it was just like waiting for my ads to drop. So I moved to Vegas like on the day that my ads were supposed to come out. And it took a couple days, like two or three days for, you know, like my the magazine to get out enough, I guess. And then all of a sudden business was booming, bitch. Just playing. That's that's a quote from another friend that 
really piss somebody I know off. But it made me laugh. But it was, I was like, business is booming, bitch. So then I moved here, and I guess you'll always attract what it is that you're into or what it is you've been doing because then I ended up meeting another tweak dealer like shortly after moving here. And I don't even remember who introduced me to him. I just remember that I he worked at a bar called Choices, and he was the bartender, and he was, well, one of the bartenders, and he was a tweak dealer and had a really great house that I used to call the Gay Boy Mansion. This is long before the Johnny McGovern put out his song, The Gay Boy Mansion, which was like, you know, 2000-something that he put out his. But this was back, you know, 90-something, you know, late 90s. But... That's when I used to call that the gay boy mansion because there were always, you know, cute gay boys around and I was one of them. And again, you know, like a lot of those boys, which nothing against them, but they were just raised different than I was. So they were always asking him for, you know, meth and that kind of stuff. And with me, it was with him. He liked doing lines all the time. And with me, I never asked for anything. And because I never asked him for anything, it always made him want to give me stuff. So he would always try to force it on me because he wanted somebody to party with and someone to hang out with. And I was a young kid at the time. So I was like, yeah, I'm down. You know, my body can handle this. And so I was partying with him quite a bit. And he would take me to really nice places. And uh, I talked about him before. I think that he had the other horse thinking that I was, uh, you know, like he was my pimp, which was ridiculous. But I didn't ever correct him because he treated me so well that, you know, it was like. I don't know if I ever talked about this in particular before, but he was not only a tweak dealer, he had been a pimp before. And so he would like to make some money off of the guys that, you know, the cute boys that would hang out. So he had these hustles because all the older men, he was old, you know, or he looked old, but technically he wasn't that old. He was like 45 or something like that. Not even 50 yet maybe 47 I remember the number 47 so maybe I celebrated his 47th birthday with him or whatever but anyway um he was you know look like shit but he was um always trying to uh pimp out these boys and so he would always treat me really well because if you know what a pimp does is they make sure these hoes look good you know like she might feel like shit on the inside but he'll make sure that she looks good so that she can make that money well a good pimp will you know and so since he was trying to make them think that i was his quote-unquote bottom bitch which if you don't know that's the main one um he was trying to make them feel like that and so i was already working on my own making money so there was already that appearance going on for him he, so i had already done half the work you know because he had nothing to do with anything when it came to me and money you know like as far as me making my money he had nothing to do with that at all and so um yeah what he would do was he would make them think that he was actually my pimp and the way that he would make them think that was by doing the stuff for me that a pimp does so you've got a guy that's taking you to really nice dinners. You have a guy that's giving you drugs all the time. You have a guy that buys you clothes sometimes, bought me a microwave, bought me food when I moved into a place. like, And all this stuff I didn't need, but he's trying to give off the appearance to this guy that he, to these guys that he's my pimp, and they're all believing it. And meanwhile, I'm just reaping the benefits from it and not having to spend my own money, which was great. I could tell you guys about some of the shopping trips I went on. Um, 
there was one where never mind. Well, there was one where I went to LA with this guy. I'll tell you guys that full story. We don't have time for that full story, but there was like a fun good story but that one i was like mm, those hot credit cards are what's going on this was years ago though and i didn't like i never asked a lot of questions i never really paid attention to anything because i knew that that wasn't my business you know i knew that it wasn't for me to pay attention to any of that but so anyway so where was i trying to go with all this that i ended up talking about being a fucking whore um, I swear, all roads lead to me being a whore, whether you're walking the streets or on the internet, one way or another. I told you guys, that's one of the reasons my ex broke up with me is, well, you know, one of the, not one of the reasons, that's a lie. Well, it kind of turned out to be one of the reasons my ex broke up with me. But I was honest with him about that because I never wanted him to find it out from anybody but me. So I told him about that. And then one night we went out here in Las Vegas, it was New Year's Eve, and we went out here in Las Vegas and we ended up seeing this girl you know a trans woman which to me she's just a girl you know like um so i say it like that but just so you guys are clear on what's going on but we ran into this girl that i knew forever like since i was a kid she was a kid too when i knew her and you know unfortunately she's still working the streets literally still working the streets. she's not i don't even think she's internet anymore i think she's just you know literally pounding the pavement um which I don't judge. I hope one day to be able to help her out because she was always such a good person. She um, took care of this guy that was AIDS, not even HIV positive, you know, full-blown AIDS. And I remember him just hanging on by a thread. And he's the inspiration for one of my jokes, you know, um, just because it was this thing where she just... She was, if you ask me, she's a saint, you know, because she really was selling her body. And at that time, like I said, she was young. And so she was really, and she was really pretty, like looked like a, honestly, like a cross between Beyonce and Janet Jackson. And that's not me exaggerating. She was just a beautiful, beautiful girl. And she's still pretty, you know, but she's just gotten older and she parties a lot. And so, you know, Time has taken its toll on all of us. So I'm not trying to act like I'm above her in any way. But, you know, she just... Um, so I saw her, uh, uh, you know, or we saw her, you know, me and my fiancé. No, at that time, he wasn't my fiancé yet. We didn't get engaged until my birthday. So um, my... But, you know, he was my boyfriend for sure. And we had moved here together. And so, um, and like I said, I told him all about that long before I told him that at the beginning of our relationship, because it's not something I ever wanted to become an issue in any way. I tell everybody, you know, that's, I think that's part of why I eventually told my audience. Cause for a long time, I didn't talk about that at all. But like I said, I was never ashamed of it. It was just one of those things where at that time I felt like, is there ever going to be a reason that I have to tell people that part of my life? Cause I felt like since that was in the past that I didn't really have to talk about it. But then, you know, in different ways, it plays into so many things to do with my life that it just can't not be a thing for me. And I don't want it to not be a thing. You know, I, I want... I want to embrace everything about myself that's supposed to be quote-unquote terrible. That way, these things can't be weaponized against me because this is just the reality of my life. And yeah, I might not choose to clear up 
every rumor that there is that you know people come up with because some of them are so ludicrous and so ridiculous that i'm just like yeah that just didn't happen and i don't know where you even got that and i'm not going to get in a situation where i'm having to correct the shit that isn't even based in reality because people might think i don't give a fuck what people think if people think that i'm on drugs then think that i'm on fucking drugs i will tell you guys that for as far as my botherinas go this is day one again of me not doing weed because that's the only drug that i do is I smoke weed and so I had taken 90 days off I ended up doing over a hundred and you know over a hundred days of being completely sober um, and then I decided to you know take a break from that and I've probably been back on for about a month now probably right out a month that I've been back smoking weed and I've enjoyed every minute of it it wasn't any kind of relapse but at the same time I hate it because I feel like I'm not as productive when I'm smoking weed and then I decided that last night was going to be the first time or that last night was going to be the last night that I smoke it to um, until we go to the next 90, you know, or until we get through the next 90, because I do have people that, like I said, want me to shoot something. So if people are being serious and we're talking about money, I don't play with people's money like that. So I will make sure that I'm 100 percent sober firing on all cylinders so that we do what it is we want to do with this special that we're going to shoot. So. I'm not trying to mess around and just be high for I can get high for the rest of my life after I shoot this or, you know, until I shoot the next one. Or maybe I'll just decide to stay sober for even longer than the hundred days. I don't know what I'm going to do. But um, so I asked my friend Ralph to tell because, you know, Ralph is usually has a little bit of weed on him. So I asked him if he would please give me a joint and he happened to have one. And this is the way I do myself my mental tricks or whatever I knew that if I asked Ralph for a joint because I don't usually like asking people for stuff like that but I knew that if I asked Ralph for a joint and he gave me a joint and I told him that he was giving it to me because it is my last night before I start this you know 90 day break then I would honor it because you know he did what I asked because it was for that particular purpose so when I did it that way, I felt very good about the fact that that was the last day before I go on my 90-day sabbatical. <laughs> anyway, stay unbothered.